have taken your first step into a larger world. Let's go. Hello there. I'm Aaron Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And welcome to Force Material, where this week we are discussing the second Ewoks movie, The Battle for Endor. So last episode, we talked about the first Ewoks movie, 1984's Caravan of Courage. And this week, we are back for the sequel from 1985, Battle for Endor. This was, just as last week was my first time watching Caravan of Courage, this week was my first time ever watching The Battle for Endor. Uh, Baz, though, you, as you know, as you said last week, you grew up with these movies, right? I did. Yeah. I, look, I remember uh, finding out about this one. Of course, there were no massive publicity pushes back then for things like this. So I just kind of spotted it on the shelves of the video store. Had never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. Didn't really quite know what it was. Was it a sequel? And, and then, you know, you see Sindel on the cover and you go, well, yeah, it must be <laughs> a sequel to that. And uh, I, I just couldn't actually believe it existed back then. I, mm. You know, I was like, here's a Star Wars film that came out just casually and it's on the wall of the video shop. And I didn't know about it. So there you go. Imagine that now. Wouldn't happen now. No, it's impossible. You'd, you'd know the entire plot before the first trailer leaked. <laughs> yes. Now, Baz, I, I suspect that this episode might turn into a battle of the battle for Endor because uh, I, I recently saw you in person at your birthday party. Happy birthday, Baz. Uh, Thank you. One of the few times in the past 15 months that we've been in the same physical place at the same time. Uh, and you told me that you recently rewatched battle for Endor for this and you didn't. And at this point I hadn't, I still hadn't seen it. And you said you didn't enjoy it as much as you remembered. And you thought Caravan of Courage uh, was the superior film. Yes. Baz, having now seen Stand by that. that. And you stand by it. It wasn't. It wasn't the alcohol talking. Baz, no. <laughs> I put it to you, having now seen Car- Battle for Endor, that you are a crazy person. Battle for Endor is clearly the superior film, and it's it's not even close. Uh, but let's address these negative these negative feelings. What didn't you like about it on this on this rewatch? I just think it didn't have a strong or resonant a story on this watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are things I, I do like about it. Um, I like the fact that the, say, shall we say, four main characters, if you include Teak, uh, Noah, Sindel, and Wicket, yeah. are, are sort of like a, a really odd bunch of characters. They're all very different. They're all unconventional mm-hmm. leads. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, that's cool, but it's sort of all over the place narratively in a way. Um, I think the first one had a clear through line. It was basically your your fairy tale plot of some guys walking to a place to do a thing, mm-hmm. um, whereas this one sort of wasn't, you know. And uh, and yeah, I, you know, I, all the way watching Battle of Endor, Battle for Endor, I sort of I kind of had my issues with the fact there's a whacking great castle in the middle of this whole thing, and the Empire hasn't spotted it yet. <laughs> 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 and, and all sorts of things, which yeah, we'll get we'll get into. But uh, I don't know. I just I just it left me a little colder than Caravan. Caravan actually genuinely made me feel good at the end of it. 
Mm. And this one just made me feel, oh, well, I, I watched that again. <laughs> it's so funny. We had essentially exactly inverse reactions to these movies because mm. Caravan did very little for me. And I, I came away just going, well, you know, this is my fault for for not watching the movie until I was, you know, a 30-something man in the year 2021. What did I expect? But then I watched this this week and I'm like, oh, no, like it is possible for me to enjoy these with like without any sort of nostalgic, you know, attachment to them uh, because I, I really liked this one. Baz, you touched on something there we may as well address up front, which is, you know, when is this thing set exactly? Uh, you know, has the Empire been to Endor at this point? You know, is this pre-Return of the Jedi? Is it post? You would assume post, like if I watched this and read absolutely nothing else about it, I would assume post probably just from the knowledge that it came out a couple of years after Return of the Jedi. Um, and, you know, the Empire doesn't seem to be a problem for them at this point. But then 90s uh, Star Wars author Kevin J. Anderson made it canon or at least, you know, Legends canon that it actually took place between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And, you know, there's a logical argument for that as well, which is that the Ewoks don't seem to really know what starships are or anything like that in these movies. So you would think from that perspective, maybe they are set before Return of the Jedi. The problem with that thinking, though, is that uh, Wicket is straight up fluent in English um, in this Mm -hmm. movie, which means if it was set before Return of the Jedi, he's essentially forgotten all the English that he knows by the time the rebels land on Endor. So or he's, he's gaslighting them by playing the part of the dumb savage. Or he's gaslighting them by playing the part of the dumb savage 100%. And look, I, I like that. That's actually a good... Uh, <laughs> that's good. He's he's doing the Yoda thing. He's like, you know, yeah. he's, just, he's playing dumb. Uh, that works for me. That's good. That's a good... Uh, no it's very wicked. Explanation. It, is, it is very wicked. That works. Look, short answer is I, I don't really care. I, I, I feel like these could almost exist in an alternate, like in an alternate continuity to the films um, where it doesn't really matter if when or if the films took place. Do you have strong feelings either way? I do. I really do. Because <laughs> I think the last time I saw it, I, uh, you know, I was like you. I just didn't really care when it was set. I assumed it was set after Jedi. No, I, I know that it's supposed to be set between the two, I have major questions about <laughs> where the Empire is and what they're doing because you don't build a Death Star in a week. So they would have been there for years setting up their shield generator, you know, building their landing pads, getting ats out and about. Yeah. You know, the, the Death Star would be in the sky because yeah. this is this is Bright Tree Village. This is right where the shield generator would be. Yeah. So, you know, suddenly there's a castle next door that no one's spotted before as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just have big questions about that. Plus, you know, this movie now deserves a post-credits scene where we cut to two Imperial gunners saying, sir, we have an unauthorized star cruiser lifting off from the planet Endor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you raise a lot of good points, especially because... You know, it took them, what, 20 years to build the first Death Star. So you got to think, if this is meant to be between Empire and Return of the Jedi, certainly, really, at any point between those two films, the Death Star construction should be visible. I'm I'm, I'm going with post. In my head, when they seem surprised by things, it's not that they're surprised by the very concept. It's just like, oh, that's what you call that. 
Like, <laughs> I know what that is, but I just didn't know that's what you called it, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I think that basically works. You talked about some of the things that, that, that didn't, uh, that didn't work for you. I mean, just to give people some background, I guess, on this movie, uh, debuted as a holiday special on ABC on uh, November 24, 1985. So just like the previous one, um, you know, we don't really think of them as holiday specials in the same way as the Star Wars holiday special, but that's what they were intended to be. Just quickly, Baz, I, uh, when I fired this up on Disney+, Plus, the poster, I saw the poster image of the battle for Endor. And I've put this question out to Twitter and haven't received any answers that have really convinced me so far. And listeners, if you're, if you have access to Disney plus or just, you know, Google, have a look at the battle for Endor poster. Who is the man in that poster meant to be? I have no idea. He, he looks like maybe like Baz, you said on Twitter, it could be the dad, Sindel's dad. But he, he looks too young and also too central to the action. He lo- on the poster, he looks like the main character. Yeah. And Sindel's dad is only in it for like five minutes. They changed the actor to Paul Gleason from The Breakfast Club. No one cares. No one notices. Uh, yeah. and, and then it's the only other male character, in the, like human male character in the movie is Wilfred Brimley. Yeah. It's definitely not Wilfred Brimley. This guy looks oh, like... Oh, no, it's not him, no. Like yeah. he's like you, you know, he's your typical like space opera action hero looking guy. Now, could this be the artist's interpretation of Wilford Brimley? And is it possible at this point he hadn't seen he hadn't seen the actors and he was just going off, you know, descriptions of their characters? I I I, I don't quite know. possibly. I, I I do think it it looks like either Mace Tawani aged up or or Jeremy Tawani aged down. It sort of looks like a guy in between. Yeah. You know the, the the dad and the son's age, and it you know looks a little bit like, you know, a, a Richard Hatch type, you know, or a it, it kind of looks like mm. a standard sci-fi. That's what I mean, hero yeah. type, you know, yeah. So it's it's weird, but I think that the clothing he's wearing gets quite close to the costume that they've put the dad in. Yeah. Um. So, but and and as you, they changed the actor between movies, so maybe they had lined up someone else to play him, um, who looked a bit more like that. Before you know, while they were doing the poster, I'm, I'm not sure. If anybody yeah. out there knows, let us uh, hit us up and let us know what is going on with this poster. Who is this character meant to be? Yeah. I am absolutely fascinated by this. But then, weirdly, as I said before, the the four heroes are very unconventional, uh, not just in terms of character, but in terms of looks. Mm. So you know, having a poster with that ragtag bunch, like an old fella, a little kid, and two hairy creatures, might sort of not appeal to your your walk past video store audiences, you might need to have someone there who looks like a hero to carry it off and not like the old fella from every other (laughs) movie. (laughs) That's true. But also can you do that? Can you just be like, there's no characters in this movie that look good for the poster. So I will just invent one for the poster. I don't think you can do that. Have that, well, is there any other instances of that where they've just invented a character for the for the poster who's well, not even I, in the movies? Um, recently, Marvel's been popping characters into trailer scenes that aren't in the actual scene in the movie. I mean, I guess um, that would be a modern day equivalent. Yeah, a little bit of hoodwinking. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. It's just very odd. Never trust a poster, you know? Like, no. Like, Ray isn't. 15 times bigger than Han Solo and Orange, 
So, yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, look, I'm sure there's a logical yeah. explanation. If you know it, hit us up and, and let us know. Uh, anyway, the movie we did get, uh, much like the previous film, Caravan of Courage, um, shot in Marin County, California. And that's essentially, you know, the backyard of Skywalker Ranch. So not a huge deal for them to, uh, to, to get to that location. Um, story by George Lucas. Uh, scripted by Jim and Ken Wheat, also directed by the Wheats. That's an interesting choice, isn't it? It is, because if you're a horror movie fan, you know the Wheats for their later work uh, a couple of years after this on A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which they wrote the script for, uh, The Fly 2, and Pitch Black, the, the Vin Diesel project. Bit of an odd choice. Apparently, they got the gig because... I don't know, at some point they came into contact with George Lucas and they were like, hey, George, that Caravan of Courage wasn't too flash and uh, we, could, we could do it better. And I don't know, I guess George believed them and, and they got the gig um, doing, the, doing the sequel. Uh, George still very involved in uh, crafting the story, even though he, you know, he didn't script it himself. Apparently, George had just watched uh, an adaptation of Heidi with his daughter and and so he he wanted to do a story that was like Heidi, but in Star Wars with Ewoks. So Heidi is a Swiss children's novel from like the 1880s about a five-year-old girl left in her paternal grandfather's care in the Swiss Alps. So you can see like the parallels with uh, Wilfred Brimley's character and, and Sindel in, uh, in The Battle for Endor. Joe Johnston and Phil Tippett also took part in one of the story conferences. I know Joe Johnston was involved in both movies, but I feel like I feel like he left a little bit more of his mark on this movie. Yeah, definitely. You know, all the stuff that the uh, the Marauders have in their castle mm. and all their weapons, and you know, they're all pretty different looking characters, like Jabba's goons. So it's yeah, there's a lot of design going to this here. Yeah. Now it gets off to a very dark start, which we sort of hinted at last week. I think we said last week that this is the Alien 3 to Caravan of Courage's Aliens, which is to say that it comes out all guns blazing, right? Yeah. It's pretty violent. Yeah. But, you know, I guess, you know, no no darker than any other Disney animation um, where, you know, inevitably the parents get killed in the first five minutes. So, you know, it's, it's quite on brand. Uh, you're right. But then the difference is like, imagine if in Bambi, like imagine mm. if Bambi was the sequel to a movie where Bambi had spent the entire movie trying to rescue Bambi's mother and then succeeded. Yeah. And then Bambi comes along and just kills the mum. <laughs> um, that's, that's what this is. So the previous movie the whole thing was about rescuing the mum and the dad. Uh, you know, Sindel and Mace went off on their adventure. This movie, George decided he had no time for any of those characters. He wanted to uh, sort of isolate Sindel and have her be the orphan character so she could uh, be paired up with Wilfred Brimley's character. Uh, and he is brutal about it. Now, they could, have, they could have done maybe like a Home Alone scenario where somehow everybody, they all get on the ship and they leave and then they're like, oh, no, we forgot <laughs> Sindel. But uh, no, he he took them all off the board uh, very, very early on. I mean, even knowing it was coming, I was surprised. Like, yeah, this was dark stuff. We didn't even get Fanula Flanagan back, obviously, to, to play the mum. So you don't really see the mum 
No, she dies off screen essentially. Like yeah. you see the body, but like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Mace dies off screen as well. I, I talked last week, Mace wasn't my favorite character, no disrespect to the actor Eric Walker. So I wasn't devastated to see Mace go. But yeah, it was, I mean, you know, and it was kind of affecting how they did that with his uh, little, uh, you know, with his life yeah. getting blipped off the, the life monitor. And then, yeah, the, the dad now played by Paul Gleason of the Breakfast Club fame, he at least gets a little bit more pomp and ceremony was hit with his death. He gets to do like a farewell, uh, you know, like a little uh, death speech and sends, yeah. sends Sindel off on her way. And it's funny, isn't it, that I was thinking about it when I watched it this time around, that his death speech is a lot like no one's ever really gone. Do you know what I mean? He's mm-hmm. talking about if you remember someone, they live on and, you know, it's it's uh, it's the same kind of concept that pops up in, in Last Jedi quite centrally. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting that it's kicking around at this time in the 80s, you know? Yeah, true. Well, speaking of connections to the new films as well, Paul Gleason, I think, bears a, a pretty strong resemblance to uh, Ben Mendelsohn. So I'm just going to say that Jeremy and Krennic are related and that, that is, uh, that's canon now. Um, the, the, the start of this film was actually dark enough that, you know, despite being essentially a, you know, a holiday special kids movie on, on TV uh, in the 80s, it was actually accompanied by a parent's discretion warning when it first aired because it was so violent uh, and because of the way that the family that you grew attached to in the previous movie, or at least that was the idea. Um, you know, I can't say I grew particularly attached to them, but, you know, they, they just were, are killed uh, immediately. I mean, overall, Baz, do you think that was a good decision? It's brave. Mm. You know, I'll give it that. Um, I think that, that yes, we kind of solved that whole family dynamic in the first movie. And really, if if we're trying to just get all off planet safely, then yes, the, the biggest thing that you can do as a screenwriter narratively is just knock off most of them and have her, you know, to have to do it on her own yeah. as a five-year-old kid. So, yeah, very... Very bold, but I appreciate what they did there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it was better for the story overall for for them to be out of the picture. This one, obviously, you know, part of, I guess, the appeal of, of removing some of those human characters is that you could focus more on some of the, you know, like the, I think this one is much more Wicket-centric than the previous yes. uh, film because he's essentially the only Ewok who's really a big part of the, the film because the others have all been taken uh, taken. Uh, hostage by King Tarak. Yeah, so the the, ti- the title Ewoks Battle for Endor is about as accurate as, you know, it's really just <laughs> one Ewok. The other Ewoks didn't do that well. Well, they, you know, they they, they get into it in a big way at the end, yeah, though. at the end. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, we, we mentioned before that, you know, one of the, uh, one of the interesting quirks, I guess, of, of having Wicket be a bigger part of this film is that, you know, so that he can communicate with Sindel and so the audience can understand him. They do just have him speaking straight up English. Uh, having said that, a little, uh, you know, a little uh, get out of jail free card, a little bit of a attempt at tying up the canon here. Uh, StarWars.com has said that Sindel and her family are actually speaking another language, that Sindel is not speaking basic. And that all of what they're saying is just being translated into basic for the benefit of us, the viewing audience. They're pulling a Valkyrie. Um, but actually, if we were to hear them as they were really speaking, 
it's not English. So if you go with that, you know, the rebels showing up and the Ewoks not being able to speak English still works because the rebels actually are speaking basic. So right, yep, yep. Does, that, does okay. that work for you? Fair enough. I mean, why not just give them all Babel fishes like, while we're <laughs> at it? Well, you know, in 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 can in universe they don't have one. They've given us. They've done. They've done us the courtesy of giving us the Babel fish. So, all right. Th- yeah. Thank you. And yeah, I sometimes wonder about the people that sit down decades afterwards and and try and rationalise these things. Like us? Do you mean? Or- well, yeah, yeah, like like us. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've come to doubt my own sanity in the dark hours of the night too. <laughs> Now, as as well as uh, the return of Wicket, we also get the return of the Ewok hang glider um, in this movie. I mean, I I enjoyed the hang glider in the first movie. I said that was one of my favorite things about it when we we watched it last week. I freaking love that the hang glider is treated in this movie the same way that, like, the Millennium Falcon is treated in The Force (laughs) Awakens. Like, it gets a big hero's welcome and, you know, a big hero moment where they're like, oh, that old thing, and then it it saves the day. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, The garbage will do. (laughs) Totally gets a the garbage will do moment. We we haven't actually discussed um, one of the things that pops up up the top Mm. of this film and has become recently very beloved in the canon again, and that's the Blurg. The appearance of the Blurgs. Yeah. As the creatures that are drawing the uh, cages where the Ewoks are kept prisoner, which is really cool. Well, the cool thing about the Blurgs being in this as well is if you do say that this is set after Return of the Jedi and you were to then go and watch all the Star Wars live-action stuff in order, you'd go straight from Blurg to Blurg because you'd go from... Battle for Endor, <laughs> yes, to the Mandalorian episode one, uh, yeah. or even if you just did it in terms of like when the Star Wars live action TV shows were released, you know, because there's no Star Wars live action TV between Battle for Endor and Mandalorian episode one. So, it, it, <laughs> yes. if you were to somehow try and experience Star Wars purely through the live action TV specials, if you were just like my machete order is the holiday special. Uh, Caravan of Courage, Battle for Endor, Mandalorian seasons one and two. Y- y- you know, you've got that continuity. And the the Blurgs are in stop motion here. So I think we talked last week about how these movies were sort of the last hurrah for ILM when it comes to stop motion, really, because they were sort of already doing a lot of stuff with go motion at this point. And then obviously it was all CGI. Yeah. Um, it's all it's all done really nicely, I think. What do you think? What do you think of the ba- the baddies in general? Do you like the look of them? Do you like their vibe? I love the Marauders. I they they are one of the reasons why I enjoy this movie so much more than the previous movie. I you know I think part of it is for me the previous film is really lacking like a a strong villain or just a villain with any sort of like motivation or anything. Um, mm. Whereas this this one you know you've got King Tarak and the and the Marauders and they're great. They're a great design. Uh, you know, they look cool as hell in like a, you know, 80s uh, fantasy movie kind of way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a- again, like in the context of like, well, this is essentially a kid's movie, you know, they're pretty scary. Yeah. And King Tarak obviously played by, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, so forgive me, uh, Carol Stroiken, uh, who is best known as the giant in Twin Peaks, 
uh, Lurch in the Adams Family, the Adams Family movies, that is not the TV show, um, and The Moonlight Man in Gerald's Game mm-hmm. and, and, and a bunch of other things. Anything that requires a kind of creepy-looking uh, tall man, odds are this man uh, filled that role in the last sort of 20, 30 years. Does he at one point at near the start say, I have the power? He does say, that's a line he has, isn't it? He does. And I, I was going to ask yeah. you about this because that I thought that scene was very strange because, the, yeah, there's this one scene where he says, I have the power, and then his, like, sorcerer's friend turns into a bird. And I'm like, did yeah. they <laughs> think they were making the Masters of the Universe movie? Like, what is happening here? The toys and the cartoons all came out. So yeah, so uh, they they would have been they would have been watching those. There's no question in my mind that one who's involved with making a Star Wars production is keeping half an eye on Masters of the Universe because they're trying to capitalize on you know the mostly the toy sales of yeah. Star Wars, not yeah. not sort of ripping off material so much as capitalizing on the merchandising streak. So yeah, they would have been aware of it, and I, I honestly think it's it's got to be some kind of a if not homage, then a, a, a dig at Masters of the Universe <laughs> to have that kind of line in there and have the, the sorceress with the bird and everything, yeah. I, I, think, I think you're right. What did you think of the, of the sorceress character? She, look, she's, she's pretty cool, but I, her, her sort of side switch didn't really land with me. You know, it just seemed a little bit unearned. Um, and th- but those two did remind me like uh, of almost prototypes for um, Bav Morda and General Kale from Willow. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got, they got a similar kind of dynamic except flipped a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, they've got a similar look uh, to those characters. So uh, I don't know if that was in, in George's mind when he came back to make Willow so many years later. Mm. Well, it wasn't even that many years later. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this definitely feels like like instead of making a third Ewoks movie, he just did Willow. Like it's it's it feels. Yeah. Like, I mean, we talked last week about you know it's it's ticking a lot of the same you know boxes. Yeah, I I don't know. I wasn't a, I wasn't a big fan of the sorceress character as much as I enjoyed it, and I, which you know part of that is just relative to like how much more I enjoyed it than Caravan of Courage. There were some characters I wasn't a big fan of. So uh, Chiral or however you say it, the sorcerer's name, n- not a big fan of her. Thought her costume was very much just like. Like you could drop her into like an episode of Power Rangers and she would look right <laughs> at home. Yeah. Um, or a Conan movie. And uh, also uh, Teak, the little, the speedster, mm. just didn't feel like Star Wars to me, you know? Yeah. I, I, it, and, and I get that part of the appeal of stuff like this is like, well, this is the mid 80s. Like, you know, what was and wasn't Star Wars was very much still in flux. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it it, it 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 felt like it was from something else, not not Star Wars. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, I think maybe the first time I saw this film, I assumed that Teak was an Ewok or like a, a slightly different species of Ewok from the the other ones we've seen. But obviously, he's not. You know, maybe he was the Ewok who got dropped into a massive vat of speed when he was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's um. He's interesting though, as as Noah's conscience, I suppose, like a mm. demonstration of Noah's conscience. That, that that's the only way in which Teak is really interesting to me. Uh, the other stuff is sort of a little bit annoying. Mm. He uh, he has that same um, 
flaw that you see even now in speedsters, which assumes that just because they're fast, they have amazing strength. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, yeah. when sort of running around a tree really quickly to tie a soldier to it with a rope, mm. um, you know, yeah, he's, he's quick, but he's not that strong. Um, it just reminds me of, you know, people like Quicksilver being able to move bodies <laughs> just by push, pushing them. It's like, it's not anti-gravity. It's not super strength. You, you're just quick. You know, <laughs> if you smash into something at that speed, you're going to break yourself. And, and that's why, you know, in the boys, when A-Train smashes into that woman and destroys her, like, I'm like, why hasn't he been destroyed too then? <laughs> got to watch out where you're going when you're running. Anyway, <laughs> getting into nitty gritty there. Uh, but, but speaking of Noah, what do you think of Noah? Because he's, you know, He's a very pivotal character. We haven't really talked about him yet. I I love Noah so much. Uh, he's a huge part of the reason why I, I enjoyed this movie uh, more than its predecessor. I love Wilfred Brimley in this movie. I feel like every great Star Wars story needs a character who does not like or want to be in Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and and Wilfred is that character here for sure. Yes. I guess he's, you know, in a way, he's the Han Solo type. Um, you know, that that said, the speed that he goes from, you know, throwing Sindel out of his house to starting a family band with them was uh, extraordinary. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's um he's an interesting guy. Like he obviously been marooned on Endor for about thirty years, I think we find out, and ha- mm. after having been a scout and a trader of some kind. Mm. Uh, and lost his his friend and partner who he was trading with. So uh, you know that that's kind of an interesting um, thing for Noah because you think of him leaving the planet at the end um, with Sindel going off into the galaxy, which, as far as he is aware, is still fighting the Clone Wars. Because um, you know where where's he got his news for? He hasn't got any news for the last thirty years. He's just been mm. sitting on, on a on a planet like he's basically his knowledge of the galaxy stops at age 20 and then he, all he knows about is living in huts. <laughs> so he's, he's John C. Riley in Skull Island, essentially. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting. I mean, you know, this is just a little tidbit, but he's, he's the guy with the arc, which, you know, saves them all at the mm-hmm. end and provides a place to, to sort of centralize their defense. So he's, mm-hmm. his name's Noah. So, uh, you know, it might I be a little. didn't even make that connection. <laughs> a little religious reference there. He's got a grounded ship that, you know, is the, is the, the safe haven. It's true. It's true. But, uh, but yeah, very, very interesting dude. And he gets some good lines, doesn't he? Like, I think when, when Terex does his, you know, end of Raiders of the Lost Art melting scene, <laughs> all, all he sort of can muster is, would you look at that? <laughs> I love that. You know, <laughs> I think great. I think vaguely to Sindel as well. So I'm like, no, for for the love of God, don't look at that. <laughs> That's disgusting. Sindel's already been through a lot. <laughs> just <laughs> she, she has, yeah. And I just, you know, when they leave at the end on the ship, it's cool and everything, and it's a fitting ending for mm. the the story. But to me, it feels a little bit like, oh well, Sindel, there's no way you and I can live here on this planet of grubby savages anymore because we have a ship now, so we're just going to go and leave them all behind. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like, well, you you two, you know, you know, it definitely belong here. You have lived here for 30 years. You lived most of your life on this planet. This is, yeah. you should probably think about staying. Yeah. 
you know, it, the galaxy's a, a horrific place now, and the, they're not fighting the Clone Wars anymore. They've got a much worse war. Um, and, and you're or they just a finished a much worse war. We don't, we don't know. Yeah, or, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's an interesting choice at the ending for to have them go off and, and uh, blaze a trail through this galaxy that's uncertain and unknown to both of them. They're definitely going to get swindled. The oh, first yeah. planet they land on, you know. A hundred percent. Baz, here's a question for you. How old do you think Wilford Brimley is in this movie? Ooh. I'm going to guess 55. He's 51. <laughs> That's if depressing. If you told me he was 70, I'd have believed you. <laughs> That's three years older than me. 51. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, I know. That's the classic Wilfred Brimley thing. Is like, yeah, there wasn't. There was a Twitter account devoted to like such and such a person is now older than Wilfred Brimley was in the movie Cocoon. No, because it was always yeah, something where right. you were like, wait, what? Uh, because he wasn't that old when when he made it. Yeah, but yeah. He he just he was born looking sixty years old. It's incredible. Wow, and and probably died looking sixty years old. You know, it's that Patrick Stewart thing, right? Where yeah, you look at Patrick Stewart in the 80s, you're like, oh, I guess he looks kind of old for his age. But now you're like, wow, he looks the same as he did in the 80s. That's wild. And, yeah, it's just that he, he just hit a certain age where he never went above or below it. It's, it's insane. Yeah. I'll tell you what I do dig about uh, his character in this one, and it's the mm-hmm. fact that he wears glasses because um, not a lot of people in Star Wars do wear That's glasses. a good point, yeah. As a... As a Star Wars fan, I always dreamed of being an extra in one of the films, and I thought, oh, well, they'll never pick me because I wear glasses. And, <laughs> um, you know, who wears glasses in Star Wars? No one. So, And I can't see without them, so I'd ne- I'll never be able to be in Star Wars. But That's with, the only thing the- stopping you. Otherwise, yeah, you know. I know. But with, with him and Dr. Pershing in The Mandalorian, and mm. I guess Maz Kanata after a fashion, you know, glasses are suddenly like they're a thing in Star Wars now. So yeah, like if you're listening, I'm I'm available <laughs> for large or small roles. <laughs> I think you've also got to respect Wilford Brimley for or this movie, I guess, for giving Wilford Brimley the uh, action hero, uh, the action hero close-ups when he's getting ready for battle. And they close up on yes. him putting all of his different stuff on as if he's, you know, Ash in Evil Dead or, uh, you know, Batman or something. And it's like, he's just this old guy. The arming of the hero, they call that. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Locked and loaded. <laughs> and yeah, loved his broken down old ship. It's, um, it's interesting that, you know, Wicket's entire people pretty much are the prisoners in this film, mm. including his father, I suppose. And maybe other members of his family too. So, uh, you know, it's kind of weird that we didn't, I mean, I didn't get any emotional resonance off that whatsoever. You know, in the first film, it's the, it's the Tawani kids, parents Mm. who are prisoners and and you don't really get to feel that for wicked. You don't get to feel his distress at having his parents kidnapped. You know, he's more concerned with Sindel's well-being in in a way. I, I disagree. I feel like you, I mean, maybe not to the same extent as Sindel in the first movie, but I did, mm. I did feel for the little guy. Uh, you know, there's a scene where he talks about, you know, like his, his family have been taken and 
you know, the w- when they get in there and and he's able to save him. To me, it's a you know, it's a great moment. He's the the Liam Neeson of um, you know, of of Ewoks. I thought that was I thought that was very moving. The was, Liam Neeson of the Ewoks. That's brilliant. Yeah, I was uh, I was I was a fan of all of that. What did what did you think of the the you know seeing the Ewoks back in our guerrilla warfare mode at the end of the movie once they'd been freed from the from the castle? It's good. That was really good. It sort of it felt to me like um, the designers had a whole bunch of ideas for Jedi that they couldn't quite shoehorn in there, and you know, this was the the sort of crop of ideas that of things that the Ewoks can use the natural landscape, etc., to to take out villains. Yeah, a hundred percent. That was, I mean, I, how, how good's the Ewok who like, who puts himself in the slingshot and then, you know, they, they shoot him at the, uh, at the Marauders. Incredible. Hero, a he, an idiot and a hero. I, <laughs> I think that describes most Ewoks though. I think they're, they're all a little bit reckless and foolhardy <laughs> as a racial trait. Yes. Yeah. I don't, is that racist? I don't, I don't know. I don't, but uh, <laughs> now, Baz, speaking of emotional moments, I loved the moment when uh, Tarak tells the Ewoks to give Wilford Brimley the, uh, the ultimatum, give me the, give me the power as he calls it, or the girl dies. And then I loved the, I love the edit there where he says that to the Ewoks to go and deliver that message to Wilford Brimley. And then we immediately cut to Wilford Brimley bringing him the power. Like there's no, there's no scene where Wilford Brimley's like, I don't know. This is my one shot off this planet. I've, I don't know if I wanted, if I want to risk giving this to King Tarak or, you know, who's this kid to me or whatever. It's just like, of course he's going to try and save her. Like, of course he is. And I, I love that they just cut straight straight to that. Yeah. The, then, and then when Tarek says in that scene, um, you know, because Tarek doesn't know their, their backstory. He doesn't know their relationship. When he says, I have your child, and Wilford doesn't question it or correct it or, you know, just the, I love that little bond that they formed so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's the family he never got to have. Yeah. I suppose, you know, these... He started off with Teak, I suppose, but Teak's more like a pet in a way than a child. He's he's terrible and, also. <laughs> but yeah, now he's got two proper sort of little kids to look after in Sindel and Wicket. Yeah. I, uh, my love of Tarek as a villain here as well is only slightly compromised by how much trouble he has defeating uh, Wilfred Brimley holding a stick. Um, <laughs> just... Just seems like he struggles with that a lot more than he should. If he was as fearsome as he uh, as he seems, the rest of the movie. I want action. Fi- I want an action figure of Wilfred Brimley as Noah. <laughs> I really do. I think it's a nice little costume. Yeah, you know, with the the sort of the chest, the box on his chest, and the overalls, and yeah, you know, the big coat. I think it's a really cool costume. I'd buy like a two pack. I mean, I'd even buy the figures, but I'd buy a two pack of Noah and a and King Tarek. That'd be yeah, that'd yeah. be sick. Yeah, yeah. This is it. They're missing a trick. They should they should be pumping these things out. But this is yeah. the first step. You know, it's on Disney Plus now. It's yeah. They've, they've it, this is like you know you invite the black sheep of the family around for like a low key family gathering, and then you know you start inviting them to a few more things, and before you know it, they're a fully fledged member of the family again. This is the relationship with the Ewok movies at, at this point. Yes. Is, you know, they're back on Disney Plus. They're back in their rotation. 
soon maybe they'll just be included in the the regular Star Wars collection on Disney Plus. Yeah, I'd love to see um, I'd love to see viewing figures for them because I'm pretty sure they've found an audience. It's so hard to say, right? Because we're so in. You know, they put up the Ewok movies and everyone we know on Twitter is like, oh my God, it's my childhood on Disney Plus or whatever. I have no idea if outside that, you know, that group of like 50 people that, you know what I mean? Like that the, the, the wider public is embracing the Ewok movies. It's like you see the, you know, the coalition polling figures today and just go like, oh, okay. Like my Twitter feed doesn't doesn't at all relate to the real world. So I, 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 I feel <laughs> yes. like maybe, maybe there's a little bit of that with, uh, with the Ewok movies, but I hope not. I hope, they are, I hope they are being embraced by the wider community. Yeah. Overall, I feel like we've, we've basically, we've, we're basically at the end here. Loved it. Loved the battle at the end. Um, loved the emotional stakes with Noah and, and Sindel and Wicket getting his family back. Uh, just connected with this one in a way that I just didn't connect or just couldn't. Couldn't quite sort of latch onto. Couldn't find any sort of hook to, you know, uh, just kept sort of sliding off the surface of of Caravan of. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's cool that you know between the two of us, we uh, we have love for both of the the Ewoks movies. Yeah, it's um it's so weird because because if you'd asked me before I rewatched them, I would have said Endor was the best one. Mm. But uh, I I don't know maybe. Maybe I I think maybe becoming a dad might have changed me in terms of like loving simple stories and fairy tale type stories again mm. in, in a way that I didn't before. And uh, you know, looking at Battle for Endor and going, well, this is a bit violent. It's very violent. <laughs> I don't want to show this to my child. It's too violent. But to to <laughs> me, this one still felt like a fairy tale because you know it's still obviously got got castles know. and sorceresses and all that yeah yeah exactly yeah. it's it's just a dark fairy tale it's just it's yeah. just well, it's not dark but it's it's got that slightly dark edge brothers grim yeah yeah it's a, it's a brothers grim fairy tale i mean not you know not even that dark but it's it's got you know it's got that dark opening it's got those villains who are sort of scary and um, yeah. have a bit of an edge to them and yeah it just i don't know it, it was just much more my back than um mm. Than, uh, than Caravan of Courage. But maybe at some point I'll revisit Caravan of Courage and that one will win me over it as, yeah. as well. I've got to tell you as well, um, it, it must be said that someone has taken Aubrey Miller off to acting school or given her some pointers between the two mm. movies because she's really good in this mm. for a, a, child, a child actor. Mm. She's she's fantastic. And I don't think she was as, as good in Caravan. No, um, I think in Caravan, you know, and like, yeah, and, and that's understandable. You know, yeah, she's exactly. Young as her first exactly. But, but this is, she's bang on in this one. Like, she's really, really good. Carries it, I yeah. would say. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I think Wilfred Brimley is, is, is genuinely great in this movie, but a lot of that relies on the interactions, uh, you know, with her. And, you know, if she yeah. wasn't selling her, her end of that, you know, of that story, it, it wouldn't work. Mm. So, yeah, no, I thought, I thought she was great in this. And, uh, I mean, you mentioned that the character is still floating around in uh, in old legends uh, uh, canon last week. So who knows? Maybe Sindel will be reintroduced at some point into the Disney yeah. canon. Now, I think we talked last week about the fact that these were sort of intended to start a whole, you know, a whole wave of Star Wars live action um, television that that just never really panned out. So 
Uh, Lucas later said that, yeah, they, they intended to do a third one, but they just got very expensive to make. And, you know, I think it was you, you said last week, it's not like he didn't do more TV. He just switched over. He just switched his focus to you know, the Young Indiana yeah. Jones uh, Chronicles. And, and then obviously in terms of fantasy stuff, uh, he probably got a lot of that out of his system with, with Willow. So yeah, I guess that explains yep. why there was no third, third Ewoks movie. And he loves to jump around between projects as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Loves to sort of, uh, you know, surprise you with where he goes next. Yeah, exactly. And does seem to fall in and out of love with Star Wars um, <laughs> at various points in his career. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, there you go, guys. That's, that's the battle for Endor. Uh, you know, what did you think? I'm assuming just like Caravan of Courage is probably a lot of big Battle for Endor heads out there. Uh, hit us up on uh, we're at Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can also drop us an email at forcematerial at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to go and drop us a, a, a generous five-star review on, uh, on your podcast listening at platform of choice. I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And you've just taken your first step into a larger world.